All right. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 19. Gospel according to John chapter 19. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1153. John 19. Over in uh, East Alabama, there's a, a smattering of cities that operate, operate on uh, what, what they call fast time rather than slow time, eastern instead of central. And uh, the reason for this, as, as, as I understand it, it may be more complicated than this, but as far as I understand it, it's because of cotton mills. So you had these cotton mills in cities like Lynette and Valley and places like that. But they were headquartered across the state line in, in Georgia in places like West, Grain, uh, West, West Point or LaGrange or Columbus or something like that. And so it made sense for them to operate on the same time zone as their corporate offices. And so because these mills employed so many people in the community, it made sense for the cities and even the counties to uh, live on fast time rather than slow time. And it's just one of those odd quirks of history that still exist today, much like daylight savings time, you know, this twice a year where we upend our lives, move it forward or backward, and it's all because of the way things were a long time ago. It's a relic of the past. It made a lot of sense back then, and some people feel really strongly about whether it still makes sense or doesn't make sense, and I'm not getting into that. But the point is, we still do it, even if it's no longer, there's no longer any practical reason for it. And whatever we think about the resurrection of Jesus, my prayer is that it would not be for us simply a relic of the past that made a lot of sense back then. And now, a couple times a year, we think about it. Um, it affects our lives a little bit, but you know, other times we don't really think about it at all. And there are some people who have a really strong opinion about it, but most people, they never really think about it a whole lot at all. And so I, I hope that, that we'll leave today knowing that the resurrection is not just one of those kind of things that we honor out of a sense of routine or tradition, even if it no longer has any practical application for our lives today. Within the pages of the New Testament, there was already a recognition that this, this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the article on which the Christian faith rises or falls. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so if it's just a story, if it's just kind of something that helps people get through life, then, then life is kind of pointless. Uh, and it's not just Christians who have to reckon with the reality of this fact. So does the whole world. Paul Puts, in, puts it in Acts 17 that the, the resurrection of Jesus is God's assurance to everyone that He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. So the, the resurrection is God's summons to the world to stop living one way, to stop trusting in certain things, and to, to live a different way and to trust in someone else. So we're going to see that together here in John 19. We're going to begin in verse 31. This is right after Jesus has died. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We'll stop there, and let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes and fresh ears this morning as we... As we hear this truth, that you would help us to see it with eyes of faith and hear it uh, and respond rightly to it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so my, my outline this morning is, is really simple, and I am, I'm plagiarizing it. This is uh, sanctified plagiarism because I'm borrowing it from 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so Paul says that that is, that is of first importance. One way you could think of that is that is the, the most concise, brief way that we could articulate the message of the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And we see those three events here in John 19 and 20. Christ died for our sins. You see that in verses 31 through 37. John doesn't just say he died and then he moves on. He, he kind of pauses to, to talk about what happened when he died. He was buried in verses 38 through 42, and then he was raised on the third day there in chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now, here's the thing. I suspect that Nobody here is thinking, wow, I, I really didn't see that coming, Matt. I didn't expect you to talk about Jesus being raised on Easter Sunday, right? So we all saw that coming. Um, but, but sometimes it can be tempting to overlook the beauty and importance of truths that are most familiar to us. Just this morning as we were riding to church um, for the sunrise service, 
man, it was just beautiful out there in the fields, and you could see kind of the fog that was lifting and the sun was shining. And before I even looked over there, Nixon, who's riding in the back seat, said, man, it's a beautiful morning today. And I just looked around and I thought, yeah, you're right, man, it is. And so he had noticed something and it kind of made me kind of stop and look around and say, yeah, you're absolutely right, this is beautiful. And so that's what I want us to do here. I mean, we've seen sunrises tons of times, right? We've seen the fog lift and all that, but sometimes you just kind of have to stop and say, wow, that really is amazing. And that's what we want to do here in this passage. So I'm praying that God will give us fresh eyes this morning. And so we start with verses... 31 through 37, that Christ died for our sins. In verse 30, John 19, 30, uh, Jesus cries out, It is finished. He bows his head. He gives up his spirit. And then what follows in verses 31 through 37 is intended to establish at its most fundamental level the fact that Jesus really actually died. That's important because... The reason that's so important is that if there was not an actual death, then there was not an actual resurrection. And so John is making clear that Jesus did not simply faint. He did not simply become unconscious. He didn't just kind of pass out so that what happened to him on Sunday was he woke up and was resuscitated. No, he actually died and he was all the way dead. So what John tells us about here is he kind of tells us this from the perspective of the soldiers who were there overseeing his execution. And what happens is normally they would leave people on the cross for as long as it took for them to die. And sometimes that could take several days, which was part of the brutality of this crucifixion was it wasn't like chopping somebody's head off or lethal injection or something like that that's relatively quick. It's supposed to be at least. But this is something that could take hours and hours, and often it would take days for someone to slowly die. And uh, even after they died, they would often leave their bodies up on the crosses to be consumed by birds or wild dogs or whatever would come along, and they would just sort of be left there as kind of a, a symbol to people who walked by of this is what happens to people who cross Caesar. And so what, what happens here, though, is that, that John tells us that the Jewish leaders are concerned because we're, we're almost to the Sabbath. This is Friday afternoon, late, and the Sabbath is going to start at sundown on Friday. And this is the Sabbath of the Passover. So this is one of the most holy days of the year on the Jewish calendar. This is akin to Easter or Christmas or something like that for us. And so this is a really important day. And if we have these naked dead bodies or halfway dead bodies, then that's going to kind of, it's going to harsh our vibe here on Easter. And it's not only going to do that, but it's going to sort of desecrate the land. And we need this to be a holy day. And so in the providence of God, they come to Pilate and they say, hey man, is there anything you could do to speed this up? Can, is there some way we could expedite, you know, we can pay a little extra and let's just get this over with and get these bodies down because we've got a holy day that's coming up and we want everything to be a-okay for that. And so Pilate says, no problem. And so he sends the soldiers out there and they would go out there with these uh, iron mallets and they would just start breaking people's shins, smashing them on the kneecaps, that kind of thing. And what would happen is that would send their body into shock. 
they wouldn't be able to lift themselves up anymore. They wouldn't be able to sort of get any more breath in their lungs and they would die a lot faster. And so that's what these religious leaders want. They want this to be over. They want these people dead and off the crosses before sundown. But their request serves God's purpose because in verse 33 it says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, I just want you to think about whatever your job is or if you're retired, whatever your job was, I can guarantee you that whatever your job is, you are a lot better or you were a lot better at it than I would be because you were trained to do it and you had been doing it a, lot, a long time and you've had a lot of experience. And so you know how to do your job, right? These Roman soldiers knew how to do their job and their job was, among other things, to kill people and make sure they were dead. They were really good at their job. They were really good at being able to look and say, nope, that one's already dead. And that's what they do. They, they look at Jesus and they say, he's dead. And just to be certain, just so we're clear, verse 34, it says one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now, setting aside any potential deeper significance to blood and water, the most fundamental thing that that signals to us is that Jesus is genuinely 100% dead. This is not that he passed out, that he fainted. This is the, the, the cavity around his heart has ruptured. He is all the way 100% dead. And so these soldiers who are professionals, they are sufficiently convinced that Jesus is dead. And if that wasn't convincing enough, the, the blood and the water, sure enough, signals that he is dead. He was a real human. The Word became flesh, and he experienced a real human death. In fact, this point is so significant to John that he does something unusual. He, he kind of stops in the middle of telling us the story, and he asserts the truthfulness of it. Look at verse 35. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John is saying, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes, and what I'm telling you is true. I'm giving you my word that it is true. Now, before we move on, I just want us to linger on that truth for a moment, because as Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. He doesn't just say Jesus of Nazareth died for our sins, although that would be factually accurate to say. He says Christ died for our sins. And when I was growing up, I used to think Christ was just Jesus' last name. You know, his first name, Jesus, last name, Christ, <laughs> right? Some of y'all probably thought the same thing. Some of y'all might be like, that's what I thought right now. I don't know. Um, well, okay, good news for you. The word Christ, is not a, it's not a part of his name, it's a title. It means the anointed one. So he's Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. And so this is a word that says to us that Jesus is totally 100% set apart by God. The fact that he's called the Christ means that he is God's chosen one. And yet he died under the curse of God. Here's, here's one way we could put it. There is only one person in all of human history of whom God has ever said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the only person of whom God has ever said that. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And yet he, 
the Son of God, with whom God was well pleased, the beloved Son, bore the wrath of God for our sins. Not for any of His own sins, but for ours. That's the first truth for us to marvel at this morning. Second is in verses 38 and through 42 that He was buried. He was buried. When John gives his account of the burial of Jesus, he mentions two men by name. He mentions one man whom he calls Joseph of Arimathea and the other man named Nicodemus. Now, if you were to read all of John's account of the gospel and all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here's what you would know about these two men. Both of them, Joseph and Nicodemus, were members of this very important ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. This is the powerful group of leaders who sort of called the shots in Jerusalem. These are the same people who decided that they wanted to arrest Jesus and to have him killed. John tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He said earlier in his gospel, there are some people who who believed in him, but they weren't okay yet with saying it out loud. And so maybe uh, Joseph was somebody like that. He was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a secret disciple. And by the way, he doesn't say that as as a way of commending that to us, as if that were a good thing. He also reminds us that Nicodemus earlier had come to Jesus by night. Back in John 3, Nicodemus comes to see Jesus, but he does so at night so that you know, he can have kind of a clandestine meeting. And so it's one of those details that makes you wonder, how did, when, when the council got together and they decided that they wanted to arrest Jesus and have him killed, how did these two guys vote? Did they, did they go along with the crowd? Did they try to abstain, you know, and sit in the back and not raise their hand one way or another? Did they try to sway things the other way? We don't know the answer to that. All we know is that up until this point, these men have been afraid to say out loud, visibly to the world, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And now something has changed. Despite their fear, these two men now openly identify with Jesus. And they do so at a time that doesn't make any sense if their only goal is to save their own skin, right? If if they wanted to kind of do the smart thing, they would have come out and said, I followed Jesus back when he was doing miracles and he had huge crowds of people following him. But now he's just been crucified. He's been condemned for blasphemy. He's been charged with sedition against the Roman Empire. And now this is the time when they decide to come out in the open and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. There's no explanation of that other than the Spirit of God moving in their hearts. This is a courageous step forward to to declare their allegiance to Him in the broad daylight. And John tells us there in verse 39 that they brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, You may say, I don't really know what all that means, but 75 pounds seems like a lot for one guy. And it is. It was. It was something extravagant. This was what you would expect of a royal burial. This is what you would expect for someone like Caesar or or Herod if they were being buried. That's what you would expect for them. And so it says something about how these men esteem Jesus, that they treat Him with such honor. And so up until this point, all the way up to His death, 
Jesus' body has been being treated with shame and dishonor. He has been beaten. He's been spit upon. He's had his beard plucked out. He's had a crown of thorns smashed on top of his head. He's been stripped naked. He's been hung to a cross and, and hung up for everybody to see. And now there is a reversal that's starting to take place where, where now his body is being taken down and it's no longer being shamed and dishonored, but it's being cared for and it's being honored. And this is all part of God's act. God is behind this. God is the one who is ultimately seeing to it that Jesus' body is cared for and honored. In fact, one of my favorite details in this whole story, I just love to think about this, is in verse 41. It says, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. In other words, right? remember, the Sabbath starts at sundown. So we have to get him down off the cross. We've got to get all of these spices and, and the myrrh and the aloes. We've got to prepare his body. We've got to wrap him in this linen. And then we've got to get him into a place where his body can rest. We have to do all that by sundown because once sundown hits, it's Sabbath and we can't work anymore. And if we don't get it done, then we're just going to have to leave his body out there and who knows what's going to happen to it. And so in the providence of God... Here is a tomb that's just waiting right there nearby. Nobody's ever been laid in it. And uh, one of the most beautiful paragraphs I've ever read in any commentary is about those two verses. A guy named Herman Ritterbos wrote this. He said, When the special care of Jesus' friends for his body is completed, there is for him, close to where he was crucified, a tomb, one that lay ready to receive him. And it is not a tomb fitting for a crucified criminal for whom even a mass grave would do. It is rather in the shadowed isolation of a supervised garden. That the tomb has never been used also fits the providential sacred character of what now takes place there. When Jesus has completed his task on earth, everything in the immediate surroundings proves to be available to him as though it has long been reserved and made ready for him as though it has long been reserved and made ready for him. This is part of the, the beautiful plan of God. I said a moment ago that Jesus is the only one of whom it has ever been said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, and yet he bore the wrath of God for our sins. And in the burial of Jesus, we see that the one who died in shame now rests in honor. It is a foretaste of what is to come on Sunday, which brings us to the third event. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And then third, He was raised on the third day. He was raised on the third day. I love to imagine John writing this uh, book. And he tells us oh, later on, listen, I, I, I could not write everything down. If I were to try to write everything down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold everything that I could tell you about Jesus. But these things I have written so that you may know that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him you may have life in His name. So John says, I couldn't write everything down. And there's lots of details that we wonder about, that we wish... John, I sure wish you would have told us what Jesus was like when He was, when he was 15, you know, or when He was 18 or 20, or what, what did He do all those years before He started His public ministry? He doesn't tell us all that, but one detail He does tell us is that He beat Peter to the tomb, Right? He says, well, listen, we were, we were racing, and uh, Peter got a head start, but then I beat him there. 
And of course, he does tell us that he got there and he doesn't really say why. Maybe he was too scared to go in, but Peter goes and, you know, he, he's second place, but then he's the first one to go into the tomb. And the point of that is that the way John recounts the story with them running together and then John outrunning Peter, but then Peter going into the tomb first, those are things, they bear the marks of eyewitness testimony. This is someone who was there and who remembers. And of course, more significant than who got there first is what they discovered, what they observed when they entered the tomb. Now, uh, this morning we were, uh, I'm going to pick on Colby for a second because I'm going to pick on myself too. We were, we were outside for the sunrise service, and uh, at some point, Colby made some reference to the empty tomb. And we say that a lot. We talk about the tomb is empty. The tomb was empty, or we talk about the empty tomb. And that is true to the extent that the most important thing that was in the tomb was no longer there, namely Jesus' body. But if we want to be real persnickety about it, and I'm just as guilty as anybody of saying the empty tomb and the tomb was empty and all that kind of stuff, but if we want to be real persnickety, the tomb was not empty. And for some reason, John finds it really significant to point that out to us. So pay careful attention to verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So, there was something still in the tomb. Jesus wasn't there, but all this linen was still there. And it's significant that the testimony of the early church was more than the tomb was empty. Because if all we know is that the tomb was empty, there could be lots of other explanations for that. In fact, Mary Magdalene thinks that there must be some other explanation. She thinks that somebody must have come and taken his body somewhere else. And if all we know is that the tomb is empty, well, that could be a viable explanation. Maybe, uh, maybe grave robbers took him. Maybe someone tried to fabricate a resurrection. Or, or maybe a wild animal got in somehow and dragged his body off and, and ate it. But the consistent message of the early church was not the tomb was empty. Their testimony was, Jesus is risen and we have seen him. If, they, if all they have was, well, he was there on Friday, but on Sunday morning the, the tomb was empty and there wasn't a body there. Well, there could be lots of explanations for that, but there's only one explanation for the fact that on Friday he was dead and the soldiers verified it and testified to it and John witnessed it. And there were people who witnessed him being laid in the tomb at, right at the end of the day on Friday and then on Sunday, and for 40 days after that, lots of people saw him walking around alive. There's only one explanation for that, and that is that he was, in fact, risen. And so it's one thing to observe an empty tomb, but it's something altogether different to encounter the risen Christ, and that's what many people did. And so John does not necessarily highlight the emptiness of the tomb. He highlights the remaining contents that were there. He finds it significant that the linen cloths were still lying there and that the headpiece was folded up or rolled up and lying separately from the other cloths. In fact, John says in verse 8 that it was seeing those articles still lying there that sort of started to do, trigger something in his brain that, okay, something is up here. And he doesn't fully understand it until 
His, his mind is open to understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. But this is the thing that starts to signal in his brain. There, this is not just that somebody has carried his body off. This is not just that something funny is going on. There is, there is something miraculous and wonderful that has happened here. So, for one thing, why, why is that so significant? If someone had removed Jesus' body, consider how unlikely it would be that they would leave these things behind, right? Because if, let's just say, hypothetically, there were some overzealous disciples and they, they heard Jesus say that He was going to go to Jerusalem, that He was going to be crucified, and on the third day He would be raised from the dead. He had said that several times. And so let's imagine that there were a couple of disciples who got really overzealous and they said, listen, there's no way that he could have been right about that. We've never seen that happen before. So we're going to sneak in and we're going to steal his body so that people will think he, you know, that he was really risen. Do you think that they would have gone through the trouble of unwrapping all that stuff? Remember, all that linen, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, and left all that there because that would mean that they would have to carry out his body naked. That doesn't seem very likely to me uh, if, if your job, if your goal is to try to honor him, that we're going to go back in there, strip him back naked, and then carry his body away and do who knows what with it. I don't know. Maybe there were some Jewish opponents who they, they, they said, we want to get rid of Jesus. We don't want anybody up to any kind of funny business. Well, remember, this is the Sabbath of the Passover. And so if they do that, they're going to have to go in. They're going to have to have direct contact with a dead corpse, which will then defile them ritually, and they won't be able to celebrate Passover. If it were grave robbers, let's imagine that there were people who, who said, hey, we were just passing by and we saw this guy, Jesus, who a lot of people have been talking about. We're going to go in there and maybe we'll find some stuff worth a lot of value. And they go in and lo and behold, they find 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. And they find all this linen, all this linen which was worth a lot of money. And so what, what are we going to do? Well, let's unwrap all that stuff. Let's carry away his naked body and let's leave all the stuff that is of value in the tomb. So either they were really dumb or that didn't happen. The, the point is John is looking at this and he's saying the most logical explanation for what I'm seeing with my eyes right now is that he is in fact risen, just as he said. Not only that, but earlier in this very book, John told us about someone else for whom this had happened, a man named Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So in, in John chapter 11, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he stands outside it and he says, Lazarus, come out. And then John says this. He says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So John witnessed that event. He saw Lazarus come out you know, walking like this, his body's still bound. They have to go and they have to unwind him, let him out of all the, all the linen and everything like that. John has that memory in his mind. And now on Easter morning, he's standing in the tomb of Jesus and he's looking at the linen strips laid there very orderly, 
folded up, rolled up. And as he writes this book, he impresses upon us the significance of what was left behind in the tomb. We don't know how the cloths got laid like that. Maybe Jesus' body miraculously passed through the linen. His body was able to go through doors that were locked, that sort of thing, so that's possible. Maybe he got up and he removed them and folded them up. I don't know. Maybe I, I would think he would just kind of want to you know, get on with his business, but maybe that's what he did. I don't know. None of the gospel writers answer that question. But the takeaway for us is that Jesus' resurrection was on a totally different scale than that of Lazarus. Unlike Lazarus, Jesus did not have to be unbound. No one had to, to stand at the mouth of his tomb and say, Jesus, come out, and then unwind him and that sort of thing. No, he laid down his life and he took it up again. To put it another way, the resurrection of Jesus is our assurance that even after bearing God's wrath for our sin, he is still God's beloved Son with whom He is well pleased. So on Friday, Jesus said, it is finished. And on Sunday, God said, Amen. God raised His Son as an assurance to us that, yes, He is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so the resurrection is not only a summons to the whole world to repent, it is also a guarantee that if you will repent, if you will trust in Jesus, the one who died and who was buried and who was raised on the third day, the resurrection is God's guarantee that if you will trust in Him, God will accept you as His own. Because God did not go through all of that trouble for nothing. There is no greater source of hope, both in this life and in the life to come, than knowing that Jesus was raised victorious over death. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And um, my prayer is that we would, as, as Colby reminded us at our sunrise service this morning, that we would marvel at what we've heard, that we would ponder it, wonder at it, be amazed by it, uh, and not sort of walk away and say, okay, now, now on to the, to the ham and the potato salad and whatever it is that you have waiting for you at home to eat, but um, that we would be amazed by this truth and that we would respond to it. So in a moment we're going to sing, In Christ Alone My Hope is Found, and I pray that we would be able to sing those words in truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to worship you. And through singing and through the hearing of your word. And Lord, we're thankful for uh, Jesus who endured the shame of death and endured uh, the wrath of God for our sins. We're thankful that he was honored in burial and honored and vindicated in his resurrection, that he is risen and alive and is seated at your right hand where even now he is interceding for us. And so, Spirit of God, we pray that you would move and work through your word and help us to respond to it. Now as we sing, I pray that you would help us to sing these words in spirit and in truth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.